Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. And for the next year, I'll be teaching entrepreneurship from Vinh University in Hanoi, Vietnam. Please welcome our guest today, Sandeep Chenet K. Shu, author of Your Company is Your Castle. Welcome. Thank you, Mark. I really enjoyed the book, and especially I love castles. Uh, so that was like part of my favorite part of the book is how you started every chapter using different parts of the castle uh, as your analogy. So I really uh, liked that very much. And I really enjoyed uh, all the experiences that you had. So let's start off with you telling us about your professional background. Well, um, it started almost 41 years ago. I came to North America to pursue a master's and then a PhD. And I got hired by General Electric Corporate Research where I formed a research team. And that team was bought out by Ericsson, the Swedish telecom giant. And then, you know, 11 years later, I became uh, their CTO uh, for the mobile phone division. And during that period, we were able to launch multiple generations of phones, invented Bluetooth. We invented a satellite system called ASUS that's over Asia. Uh, It's providing maritime service. And then Ericsson went through some trouble. So we merged with Sony and we formed Sony Ericsson. I was their first CTO. And uh, at that time, Nokia was very dominant. And so we had to do something in order to revive our business because we were getting clobbered in trying to compete. So we came up with this concept of a multimedia phone, which is the precursor to the smartphone. And you know, the company came and said, well, you've got this great idea, but how do we build it? And there was a company in Sweden that was able to build it, but for every dollar they made, they lost a dollar. So they shipped me off to Sweden to go and fix that company and actually deliver the product, which fortunately, because of my terrific engineers, we were able to do. We went on to take 30% market share in the world. Uh, I stayed in Sweden for three years, came back, there was, I couldn't be an expat for more than three years. I came back to America and I worked uh, in a company called Freescale, uh, which we sold to private equity for a little over 17 billion. And then then I basically uh, uh, went into a consulting business and I said, look, I've done a couple of turnarounds. Why don't I go do this for myself? And I had a wonderful five years doing some very interesting problems for five multinationals. And the last multinational that I was hired to actually help uh, revive was BlackBerry in 2013. And one thing led to another, and I helped them basically restructure. And uh, uh, at the end of it, they said, hey, come and run some businesses for us. So I took five of their smallest businesses. And within four years, it was over 50% of the the revenue of the company. And 
a tremendous amount of the profit. <laughs> and so it was a wonderful run. And after that, I decided, hey, why don't I write a book? After writing the book, I came and joined a startup, a disruptive startup, to do something unique, to make cars, uh, you know, a lot safer using digital radar. So that's what I do today. Wonderful. Why did you write this book and use Castle as a representative of the concept of building a great lasting company? It seems that you're now an authority on Castles, which I'm fascinated <laughs> with as well. I doubt I'm an authority on Castles. I did a lot of research. But, you know, when I was starting off in business, uh, I was a young general manager, you know, just, just shy of 40 years old. And uh, I made a lot of mistakes. Because I think I got promoted because I was technically, somebody thought I was technically and operationally astute, but I really knew nothing about running a business. And in hindsight, it was probably a mistake to put me in that position. And while I grew the business for three years, I, we had a big crash. And I found that every stumbling block that I went through ultimately became a stepping stone for success. So, you know, fast forward many years, I said, what if I, kind of capture my experiences and most of the things that I did in a book, it would be helpful to many like me. Like in most businesses in the, in the high-tech business, a large number of people promoted to senior positions were like me, technically probably competent, but really clueless about business. So I wanted to basically write a book that talked about how to build a good business systematically and structurally and the extended metaphor that I used was a castle because medieval castles have lasted over 500 years, some of them at least. Uh, they're grand, they stand today, they've withstood nature's elements, which are akin to macroeconomic factors in a business. And they've had hordes of invaders attack them just like competitors attack your business. So I thought it's a, it's a nice analogy to use. And that's why I picked the metaphor of a castle. You wrote there were eight elements to building a strong company. What are they and why did you choose those eight? Well, I think uh, uh, this structure that I thought through is kind of logical. If you look at any castle or any business, you know, all castles are first built on solid foundations. You pick a strategic location in a business that would be your business model and you want that business model to be sticky. And then you want a solid foundation, and the foundation is your ability to generate cash. Because without cash, you can't build your business, and without a solid foundation, you can't build a large castle. It won't hold the weight of the castle. And then the next thing is to think about a strategy. The strategy is something that surrounds the business, and in a castle, it's the perimeter wall. It's what protects the castle, um, now, the perimeter wall in itself is exposed because uh, enemies can tunnel under the wall, they can scale the wall. The same thing happens in a business. So you need protective towers along the wall to protect the wall. And these protective towers in a business are product creation, which reinforces the strategy, product delivery, which also reinforces the strategy, sales channels, and execution. Uh, without these protective towers, your strategy invariably will collapse. And uh, all of these together actually surround the central portion of the castle, which is the keep, 
which houses the people, uh, the granary, the armory, etc. And the keep, in my mind, is a culture of the is the culture of the company. Because when strategy and culture clash, culture always wins. And if you don't protect the culture of the company, it's very difficult to succeed. So, and then you need a roof on this on this castle keep, and that is stakeholder confidence. So, who are your stakeholders? It's your investors, your customers, and your employees. How do you get that confidence in order, order that you can continue to build and uh, a good business? So those are the elements that I wove together, which are very similar to the elements that kept a strong castle going. You worked at many of the major phone companies. The one to me that had the biggest lead and was dominant was BlackBerry, which you and I talked about uh, before everybody came on. You address this in the book. I, I want to know why did they fail when they owned the corporate uh, space? It reminds me of Smith Corona, which manufactured and supplied practically every company with a typewriter and should have dominated the uh, corporate computer market. You know, the phone business is a very hyper competitive business. Every decade, you've had different leaders. I mean, uh, you know, what happened to BlackBerry happened to Nokia too. So I think they missed a trend. Now, there are many, many theories. If you read uh, articles, some people believe they were, they focused on the enterprise <laughs> segment too much and they didn't focus on consumers. But I think they just missed the trend of a touchscreen display. Although the Storm had a touchscreen <laughs> display, it was too small, but a full screen display where they could use their fingers to navigate a good user interface and an application store. And unfortunately, by the time they came out with that, they were three years too late. And uh, the market had already caught on and Android and iPhone basically took over. And this happens in a lot of industries. It's not the, uh, they're not the only uh, calamities in, in a disruptive change. Uh, is there a profile of a certain type of leader that uh, ignores the competition or the changing landscape that the board should be aware of? I mean, when these things happen, why why does it happen like that? You know, you know I I personally believe that uh, it's my experience, and you know, this is just an opinion or an experience. Um, I believe that in order to run very technical companies, you need people with domain expertise. And you also need people who can take a certain amount of risk and manage that risk, which means you need to have operational experience. So if you, if you put a person in charge that does not have the domain expertise, does not understand the market and the forces that come to play and cannot navigate the risks because of their, they lack the operational competence, it is very, very difficult to continue to be profitable and run a good company. Isn't a big problem, though, also that these boards are loaded up with finance people and not people who really understand product or technology and they're not product visionaries and hate to make those kinds of investments. They just like Kodak um, blew the opportunity to own the digital uh, camera space because they kept just selling the film because people were like, man, we're making great margins on this and they don't see the need to cannibalize themselves. Yeah, I think you know, in Kodak's case, they invented the digital camera. 
and they right. had every every <laughs> that's the that's the irony, right? But I agree, you know. In I've always maintained that you can never dig yourself out of a hole. You know, you've got to find a way to catapult yourself, and for that, the only way you can do it is to intersect transformational trends. If you look at most of the companies that have are today, uh, you know, uh, really big, you know, the uh, uh, the Magnificent Seven, for example, they've all transformed themselves. And they've been able to basically look at new trends, things that customers want. And uh, you, can't, you can't win otherwise. Yeah, I mean, I, I look at Sears too. I mean, they were so dominant. If you would have said to somebody in the 60s that Walmart would overtake them, or that their catalog would disappear after a hundred years, people would think you're nuts, but they should have owned the Amazon space. They should have been the dominant retailer. And yet uh, they they blew that enormous lead in the like in the fourth quarter of a game and uh, were crushed and uh, ceased to exist anymore. Yeah, I agree. I mean, uh, the the key, the key is uh, is a couple of things, right? And uh, it's really understanding the market and how it's going to evolve to intersect these intersect these trends. Okay, I've given a number of examples in the book of people who've been able to do that. Uh, take take Boeing for example, right? Uh, you look at what they did, and when they bought Douglas Aircraft, when they launched the seven three seven, when they launched the seven four seven, when they bought McDonnell Douglas. Um, you know, you can take. Uh, Harley Davidson, you can take Coca-Cola. You know, all of them understand their markets extremely well and what their customers want and are able to satisfy that need. So they, in some way, their businesses are sticky. The other thing is they adapt. They're able to change rapidly in order to address these markets and leverage their strengths, uh, which a lot of companies don't know how to do. And that's exactly what happened with, uh, uh, you know, the big phone companies, you know, there's a very interesting experiment and it's a really nice story. Uh, it's it's basically, uh, you know, they do this in management exercises. So when you, when you bring these executive coaches, they pair you up with a partner and they give you a basketball and they tell you to pass the basketball to your, uh, your partner at full speed. And so that you are completely focused on just passing the ball and catching it. And while a number of people are actually doing this experiment, a person in a gorilla suit runs across the room. And they ask everyone, how many of you noticed the gorilla? And most of them haven't because they're so tied up with their day-to-day jobs. They haven't really worried about what's going to disrupt them. So unless you take regular time to reevaluate your business and find out where are the uh, the you know where's your castle going to break down or where's the whether internally or from external forces uh, you're invariably going to be in trouble. Please talk about what you learned in turning around Ericsson mobile platforms and how you developed that. Yeah, it was an interesting situation, you know. Uh, Ericsson Mobile Platforms was competing in an era where there were a lot of chip suppliers. So we basically supplied semiconductor chips and software to build mobile phones, okay? 
And uh, our biggest competitor was spending 10 times as much on R&D. So they were spending 2.5 billion and we were spending 250 million. So it was kind of a difficult situation. And for every dollar we made, we lost a dollar. So going in there and saying, okay, what could we do? So we thought of three things, right? The first thing we thought of was, uh, the first is how do we get to be profitable? Okay. Because if you're not profitable, your customers won't believe in you. Okay, why would they stay with a company that's losing money or bleeding? There's no need to, because they're choices. The second was, what could we do to differentiate against the competitor that they wouldn't think of doing? And the third is, how would we be able to execute that strategy, right? And that is what we were able to do. But in order to do this, and I talk about how I did that in the how we did it in the book. But the thing that struck me, the one thing that I learned is when you have that vision and the ability to do this, because we were successful, is how do you get your team to follow you? Okay. And that was really building the culture of the company. And there are three things that I've done to uh, repeatedly in multiple businesses. Uh, to get employees to buy into the vision and help you do the transformation. So the first is uh, I uh, like to basically do something called ask me anything meetings. So every month I basically ha I have meetings with employees selectively picked. I mean, like depending on your, if you have a birthday in the month, then you come to the meeting. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and we sit around a table and literally you can ask me any question. I start by explaining what we are doing in the company, why we are doing it, what's the logic, and then take questions. And you have to be ready to face the toughest questions. It, this one cannot be where you on, only asked easy questions. You must allow the employees to ask you the hard questions. And with time, as we went on doing these meetings, more and more people started to understand the logic. And we were able to also bust a lot of myths that were going around, okay? Uh, the second thing we did is uh, every town hall that I had, which I had fairly frequently, once a quarter, I would bring in customers or videotape customers and have them interviewed, a short interview, to tell them what they did not like about us. What, what were we doing incorrectly? So one in one of these meetings, uh, we had uh, the CTO of a big phone company an operator, and he said, look, you're the smartest bunch of guys building technology for phones, but, um, you know, last year, you made promises to me, and I made promises based on those promises, and you didn't deliver, and I lost my bonus because of that. And it was, it was shocking. No one realized this at all, and uh, that one discussion completely changed the mindset. And, and my employees would jump on planes even during Christmas to go help customers after that. Okay. And the third is, the third technique is uh, basically uh, I told the management team that in, we normally get reports from the employees about what they are doing. How about we give them our own scorecard? How, do, how are we doing as a management team? We report to them and tell them, how are we doing? How are we moving the company forward? And so every month we would write uh, 
a five-page newsletter. I would do the first page on what we were doing and progressing as a, in a company in terms of design wins and financially and things like that. And then each of my uh, executive team would write a page providing what they had done to move the company forward. And so the employees started feeling with time that, look, these guys are in it with us. And uh, the cultural change moved a lot faster. You know, I've read a book on turnarounds and I worked in four turnarounds. And that's exactly how to work a turnaround is open communication, listening to employees, but being accountable to them, not that they're just accountable to you. And I wonder, why didn't you ever become CEO of a Fortune 500 or a Fortune 1000 company? It seems that your philosophy, your way of communication, the transparency, everything. <laughs> and I wonder, is that because you're a technologist and not a finance person, which is typically what a lot of these folks are who are moved into that top slot, or maybe they were head of sales? You rarely find the person head of marketing unless it's a consumer product company, but you rarely find a technologist unless they founded the company end up being CEOs of these kinds of companies. You know, that's a really good question. I've been asked this a lot. And uh, I think part of the fault is with me. Uh, and, you know, because a lot of people have said, look, you're equally comfortable with technology, you're strong in operations, and you understand finance as well as most people do. Uh, but why is it that you never put your hand up? I think the answer is, I was more comfortable doing the chief operating officer role. Okay, I like detail. I like fixing things. And uh, I've been offered the CEO job five times. And I actually said no. Okay, I really enjoy turning around companies getting into and, and difficult problems. That's what gets me up every day. And I, I don't like just getting on a stage and speaking or trying to raise money and things like that. I like to really fix hard problems. So that's my comfort zone. And uh, I probably didn't venture outside it. Um, in hindsight, maybe I regret it, but you know, it's it taught me a lot. It, what, what is the difference between CEOs of these large companies and, and the roles that you turn down and chief operating role? Yeah, in, in, as the chief operating officer, uh, you are deeply embedded in the internal part of the company. You're involved in product definition, product creation, product delivery, supply chain, manufacturing. Uh, a lot of the functions that go towards building the product and putting it on shelves, right? And that's what I was much more comfortable doing. And uh, the other parts like in sales and marketing is things that probably I didn't enjoy as much. Have I done it and have I been successful in it? Yes. But did I enjoy it as much as innovating and creating and um, doing the operational aspects? Probably no. So I, uh, opted for the one that I felt my skills were better suited for. Was going from a U.S. culture to the Swedish culture, my daughter's married to a Swedish guy and lived there for nine years, a, a difficult transition? Not really, because, you know, I worked for Ericsson for effectively for 18 years. 
So I was going to Sweden maybe 10 times a year. So I was well ingrained with the culture. And, you know, I found that it's not just in Sweden. I worked in Japan. I worked in 14 countries. People are people. You know, it's uh, uh, maybe there are certain slightly different beliefs and there's slightly different ways of communicating and engaging. But generally, there was not a difficult, it was not a difficult transition. But the one thing I learned in Sweden that was super good is that uh, there's two things at least I learned. One is that I found that the more communication I had with the employees, the easier it was for me to be accepted. And the second part was, uh, you never make a decision and drive it down. You, you generally, even if you've made a decision, you actually present it to the team and ask them and tell them the constraints and let them try to come up with the same, with a similar answer. Invariably, if you, if you are logical and the team is logical and you've got similar constraints and the same objective function, you normally come up with a very similar answer. So those are two things I learned, which was interesting. By the way, um, as you know, I'm in Hanoi, Vietnam, and I think you're right, the people are people. And uh, for me, the transition of living here wasn't that big a deal uh, because people were essentially the same all over. Uh, and so you're right about that. Um, there are five reasons businesses uh, fail according to CB Insights. No market need, businesses ran out of money, wrong management team, competition, pricing without market knowledge. Which one would you say is the biggest reason and how do leaders prevent it from happening? Yeah, I think that two of them, uh, it's actually very difficult to say whether it's two or three, you know, because uh, I think all five are important, but number one, you have to have very good market knowledge. If you don't have good market knowledge, it doesn't matter if you have a fantastic team and if you have terrific, uh, you have a lot of money. Because if you don't have good market knowledge, that means, do you know what is your market opportunity? What is the competition like and how will they react? Right? What is your differentiation? If you really don't have a good idea about that, it doesn't matter if you have the others, okay? That's the single most important thing that I believe. And if you look at a lot of, lot of companies, and I mentioned a lot of them in the book, when they lacked market knowledge, right, they've invariably failed even though they had billions of dollars behind them. How do you define market knowledge? So if you take, for example, uh, let me just give you an example. Maybe it's, uh, it's, it's in the book. And you take Microsoft basically coming in with the, with the Zoom media player in an era when you had the iPod and then uh, Apple transforming, to the, transforming that into the iPhone, right? iPod already had a massive market. And it was transitioning to the iPhone, which was disrupted. Zoom was another media player. And what was its differentiation? How did they believe they could displace the incumbent base for the iPod? So what was the, re what was the rationale? How would they break in? Now, on the other hand, if you take what Apple did to Nokia, even though Nokia had, was selling 450 million phones, what Apple said was, hey, I don't think they have the right user interface. 
You know, I was on a talk show with uh, Jeff Greenfield, I believe, uh, uh, and the, the Freescale Technology Forum, and he asked me a question. He said, hey, Sandeep, you seem to be, you, everyone thinks you're a phone expert. What do you think is the killer app on the phone? And I think it was 2005. And I told him, 2006, sorry, 2006, or 2007, sorry, uh, forgetting so many years ago. And I told him it's the, it's the user interface. Because in those days, phones were basically, everyone used to scroll with a, with a little thumb wheel or a little uh, rocker. And, you know, these, there were these nested menus that you had to go find functions. Nobody wanted to do that. You wanted an icon that you could click on. You wanted to pinch and zoom. Apple understood what the customer wanted. And Apple also understood that they want applications, right? And that's exactly what they opened out. So they completely toppled an incumbent by truly understanding what the customer needed. So they really had market knowledge, right? So if you have deep market knowledge, you can make a transformation. Otherwise, you're going to fail. A question from the audience. You've worked in Fortune 500 companies. How would a castle be for a startup CEO compared to the Fortune 500? I don't think it's any different. Uh, I think because I work for a startup right now. And uh, it's we have all the same problems. Now, the only thing is in startups, you probably raise money and you have to be probably more prudent with cash. Okay. And so we've got to basically spend it very, very wisely because it's difficult to raise money if you don't have either design wins or revenue. No one's going to give you more money. And we all know that most startups, 25% uh, of them fail in two years, 45% uh, of them fail in five years, and 75% fail in 10 years, and in 15 years, 90%. So <laughs> that's a long time for a startup. But I think it's exactly the same. So uh, the principles that I'm using, I've, I've basically talked about in the book, is exactly what I'm using. Because the essentials are structure. It's structure and some amount of prudent process. You don't have to be bureaucratic, but it, you need to have the structure and you cannot basically take shortcuts on that. What do you think of stock buybacks, which I think is a total waste of good capital and that can be used for new product and development? You know, this is a little controversial because uh, uh, I, I believe that if, you're, if, if you, I wouldn't be, do a stock buyback at the cost of investing in innovation. So if I had, to basically allocate funds between a stock buyback and to invest in innovation, I would probably go towards innovation. Now, however, if I have invested sufficiently and I have sufficient cash that, and I can do a buyback that is favorable to the valuation of my company, increasing the value, then I would probably invest in a stock buyback. So it depends really on the situation. Yeah, I, I'll never buy into it. I just watched it for <laughs> the years. And I always rather invest in innovation and keep creating new revenue streams than uh, buying back that stock. It just never seems to work out for the people who do it. Uh, did you separate the sales leadership from the marketing leadership, or did you have one person that led both groups? Because I often find the salespeople really don't understand marketing, but the marketing people might be a little bit better at understanding sales and seeing the value. 
You know, it's a really good question. In all the high-tech businesses that I was in, I tried my best to keep them together. Because the common problem is I had to always fight this top of the funnel versus bottom of the funnel. And it was very, very difficult. So I really had a common sales and marketing department with common goals. So I could hold people accountable to the same metrics. And I think that's what worked for me. Uh, and it's also important, you know, in a high-tech business, which is high touch, you can't really separate the two functions. Because if you separate the two functions, you get disconnected very easily. Uh, you know, because it's the salespeople who are actually talking to the customer, who understand the customer, who do consultative selling. And they need to create a strategy how to get the reach because you can't really se se separate reach impressions and conversions. So I've always kept them together. Did you uh, spend a certain amount of like a percentage of sales on marketing or did they build a marketing budget out uh, for you that basically focused on how they were going to get sales, but it wasn't a percentage. They had to essentially lay out a strategy and they told you, here's what we need to spend and how much in sales, like the return did marketing have to bring for it to justify itself? So, you know, actually the way I did things is I started with an annual operating plan. You know, you start with an annual operating plan, what you're going to do for the whole year. And what are you going to achieve? And you have certain growth metrics, you have gross margin, net margin, all of these metrics that you have, right? And you allocate a certain spend, right? In order to hit that budget, because you have to treat a company not by individual department metrics, but at a holistic level, how are they all contributing to that annual operating plan? If you, segregate them into individual department metrics, these metrics, these departments might hit their metrics, but then you won't hit your annual operating plan. So I have never basically believed in people just telling me this is their budget. You know, if I was running a business, I said, here's my annual operating plan. This is what we're going to do and get buy-in for that and go hit that. You wrote, it's a fallacy to think that products sell themselves. Please talk about the need to build a strong sales channel and what does that look like? And what are the attributes you look for in a good sales leader and personnel uh, on the ground selling? Well, <clears throat> so, you know, um, you're right. I mean, I did say that as I think one CEO once told me that if you build a really great product, it'll sell itself. And that's a fallacy. Um, the you need still to basically distribute the product, place it properly, price it properly, sell it. And in the high-tech business, at least in a high, it, it's very, very high touch because you actually have to talk to very knowledgeable customers and solve a need that they have. So the first thing that I really focus on <clears throat> is how do I pick the right, how do I pick the right go-to-market channels? So what am I going to address with my direct sales force? What am I going to address with my indirect sales force, which could be distributors, partners? And then what am I going to do with my online channels? And for each of these, I like to basically look at 
what is the velocity of conversion and what is the margin they produce? So that is something that you constantly evaluate in order to figure out which of these channels is productive. And the ones which are productive is where you put your incentives. Because an incentive has to be designed to be an incentive and not an entitlement. That means you don't pay to play, you pay, pay to perform. Uh, and this, and that's basically how I've run most of my sales businesses. Uh, it's very metric driven. Okay? The second uh, thing is that uh, uh, when we talk about salespeople, I found that you know I became an accidental salesperson because you know in all my companies, I found that um, I don't think we appreciated sales as much. And it's only when you get into sales because you have a shortage of salespeople and you start helping out to sell, you realize all the things salespeople do every day. I mean, they have to do forecasting. They have to do it well. Otherwise, you have a lot of inventory or issues with supply. They have to basically convince customers to actually use the product. They have to create a need uh, and so on. There's just a lot of work that they do and it's as complicated as engineering or operations. So the thing that I looked forward, in, forward to in my salespeople is, did they have domain expertise? Ideally, if they came with a background from my customer base, that was the best because then they understood the customer they understood the customer pain points, they understood the customer needs, and they could be excellent consultative sellers. Okay, and that's what I looked for because in all most of the businesses I ran, they were all high touch and high tech. And therefore you had to have that domain knowledge in order to actually try to solve problems for the customer that they couldn't. For example, I'll tell you an interesting thing at EMP, Ericsson Mobile Platforms, the question you asked me earlier. You know, one of the things we decided is, um, is how are we going to differentiate? Uh, the other guys are spending more money. So you couldn't say you kind of built better technology. Than they, they were good. But in those days, uh, building chips and software, we would build it and hand it over to the, to the phone manufacturer, like an LG or a Sony Ericsson or a Samsung. They would then put it all together and it would take, it would take them 18 months. Okay, we decided, hey, why don't we put it together and call it a platform where we would test this platform against different infrastructure around the world and shorten their time to market from 18 months to six months, which is really time to market, but it's also time to money. And that was huge differentiator. And it required us setting up a kind of software factory in order to do that. And when we were able to do that, we completely disrupted the industry. And our competitors couldn't keep up because even though they were spending more money on core technology, they forgot the delivery aspect. And that's how we were able to win. And then my salespeople who came from building phones were able to explain to all phone manufacturers, hey, if you take our model, and these are the things, if you do these things, you could actually shorten your time to market and therefore time to money. And that's an example of a consultative seller. And I think that's very, very powerful when you use that technique. When you were hiring a head of sales, what did you look for? What, what were the attributes of the person you were hiring? 
the number one, as I said earlier, it is really domain knowledge because you have to know your product and how to sell it and how to basically create uh, the value proposition and need with a customer in order to do this. So that was one. The second is I wanted people who were, uh, you know, willing to hunt. You know, they were willing to hunt every day uh, and actually were driven with incentives. So uh, they were not just interested in a paycheck. They were interested in basically getting the incentives in order to basically earn more. And we would basically provide up to 400% of their base salary and incentives. So people who are motivated by that um, and who had the domain knowledge uh, probably did extremely well because if they're doing well, then my company is also doing well. I used to like to hire people where they had high lifestyles, like they needed money to fund those lifestyles. <laughs> and if somebody I noticed lived frugally, I don't want to hire them because they would stop at the at just you know at whatever they had to reach to keep their job. They'd stop at that. But somebody who um, had boats and houses and traveled all the time and wore expensive stuff, I knew those people were hungry all the time. They had to keep feeding that fire. So I liked looking for people like that to hire. Well, how important is having somebody in a leadership position who is good at coaching people? I think it's extremely important. It's probably one of the most important skills for a leader. Because, you know, there's, there's no point in in just pulling up people and slamming them and shouting at them. And you got to find out why are they failing? What's the reason? And figure out how to coach them. You know, I have a really good example, right? In one company, uh, I had a serious supply chain problem, very serious supply chain problem. And I, uh, you know, we were just had too much inventory and it was growing. And I started looking at the problem and I found out that it was not the problem of the supply chain people. It was a template given by finance that was completely useless. It was great for finance, but it was useless for supply chain. So we came up and I said, okay, okay guys, look, why don't we change this template? Let me give you a different template, which told you what is your total inventory in the entire chain, right? And also what is the ability to drain it? Okay, with the parameters, and that's what I want you to report every week. And from that, we can make decisions. So it was basically a template that collected all the necessary data, which actually helped you make a good decision. When we did that, the inventory problem just went away. And you know, the supply chain people were really happy. They had now learned a technique in order to basically prevent building up excess inventory. So I think it's extremely important for leaders when they see problems uh, to actually go in, analyze things themselves and say, you know, and, and try to figure out how they can help their staff. Are the sales mindset different for low cost, high volume products than high ticket products that could take a year or more to sell? And how's the personnel you hire different if they're different at all? Yeah, I mean, it's there's uh, that's what I call that's the difference between low touch and high touch. There are a lot of products which are very high volume 
And it's basically you're buying it based on cost. Okay, obviously it has to have some reasonable quality, otherwise you will not have any loyalty to that product. But that's a lot easier to sell. You don't have to have a lot of domain knowledge. Okay, and you can do a lot of that online. Now, if you're basically selling a cell phone uh, or you're selling a semiconductor chip for servers or for graphics or for, or you're basically selling software for which are safety critical for high-speed trains or for cars uh, or for missiles, for that example, for example, or you're selling digital radar like we do for cars. You, these are very complex technical products. Not everyone understands them. And you've got to figure out how your product fits into your customer's ecosystem or needs and how can they deliver value with it over and above what they get today, right? And that means you need to understand your product well, and you need to understand your customer's business very well. And then you can probably do that, right? And so that's the difference. So when, when you're doing a high-touch sale, you need to have that competence. Otherwise, it's very, very difficult in order to consummate a sale. I want, what's the mental mindset or, or the mental makeup of somebody who has to take, it could take a year to four years to sell a client because the um, the price tag is so big, the integration takes so long and so forth. When you're hiring those kind of people, what do they look like? Because some of the entrepreneurs that are listening have expensive products that they're offering out in the marketplace and hiring that right kind of salesperson because like myself i don't know if i could have the um it would drive me nuts to take a couple of years to sell a product but it takes a certain kind of person that has that kind of patience and doesn't feel defeated uh, by the process so what's what's that person look like it comes with experience right i mean take the auto industry the components we sell into the auto industry has a sales cycle of four years just exactly like you said, Mark, because it takes it takes a year, year and a half, even to go through the complete process. And there's a whole learning with this because every customer, you know, you start by basically trialing the product. They will ask you to do a lot of demos and they will have use cases. So you have to have the patience to collect the use cases Sometimes you will fail, sometimes you'll pass, and what will you do? And give feedback to the engineering team to fix those issues because it's a complete feedback loop, right? And then you fix those issues and you go back. And ultimately, you get a chance to actually get involved in, this, in, the, in the purchasing process. And then you've got to basically work through all the legal and contractual terms in order to get it. And then it takes another two years for it to get into a car. So you've got to be realistic about what your sales cycle is. And you cannot short circuit it. But at the same time, you want to arm your salespeople with all of the support needed to go through that process. If you don't do that, it's going to fail. So typically, what I try to do is I try to say that, okay, if my sale has got the cycle at each phase in the cycle, how am I going to support the sales team with the necessary engineering and operational support or legal support? in order to get through that phase, okay? Because it's a collective effort. You can't just throw it over the fence and say, make it happen. You know, it doesn't work. 
Uh, what's the biggest mistake businesses make when hiring salespeople? What did you learn over time that made you even better at hiring them? Oh, I think I've gone through it, uh, Mark. It's, uh, it's basically, it's, it's the knowledge. Because, uh, you know, normally when I interview uh, people, I try to give them specific cases and say, uh, because I'm trying to find out how they think and how they close deals, right? And so I give them specific cases and try to see how would they go about solving it? Because it's not just the aptitude, right? It's also the attitude. And so uh, you want to basically figure out, will this person actually fit in with your thinking and the company's thinking in order to solve the problem? And do they really understand the problems that the customer will face and what value prop you're bringing? Uh, a friend of mine worked for an electronics company. He had a backlog of $40 million in sales, but he couldn't get the product to the customer. And for almost two years, they were promising they were going to fix this problem, but didn't happen. My friend lost sales, which impacted his compensation, and he left for a competitor. His former company was over $10 billion in sales. Why do you think that happened? And shouldn't a large company have a better handle on their process? No, absolutely. I mean, one of the things is that uh, there are a couple of things I do. I have what is called a sales council, right? In the sales council, we determine uh, what are the who are the customers we are going after, and we have a priority list. Now, we can't basically satisfy the entire list, obviously, because we have limited resources. So you figure out and you prioritize who are you going to <laughs> go after. Then you've got to make sure that you have the right product for them. You know, otherwise, you're going to be making a promise to deliver something that you cannot. Okay, You have to align that your software releases or your chip releases or whatever where product releases align with the customer needs, right? And then we basically have project reviews. I have a regular customer project review where each person responsible for a customer account tells me, right, what am I missing in order to basically deliver? Do I have a technical problem? Do I have a price problem? Do I have a legal problem? Do I have a supply chain problem? And then we basically go and fix that. So it all comes down to basically having a very interlocked scheme in order to deliver, right? You cannot overpromise and underdeliver that you won't be in business for long. So you you carefully select what you're going to work on, and you align everything in the company to deliver to that, you know, and place a bet. When setting sales goals, who sits in that meeting, and how do you develop realistic goals while pushing your organization to stretch themselves and to overachieve? Well, I think the first thing is it goes back to how you design your annual operating plan. You know, it all has to be rational. You know, if you see the market going down by 10% and you suddenly think you're going to grow by 20%, it's ridiculous, right? So maybe it's possible, but uh, by and large, this is the job of the CEO, right? And the COO and the CFO. They've got to sit down and figure out what is realistic, what can they achieve, look at that pipeline and say, okay, we've got this backlog and pipeline. What can I achieve the following year? I might get a couple of bluebirds, but that can't be the basis of, my, of, a, of an aggressive plan. It's got to be based on what you have developed to date and your pipeline, right? And then you basically make a realistic estimate. And that's how you set sales goals. 
Because the last thing you want is to set unrealistic goals and your, your top salespeople will go look for other jobs. That's just not a winning strategy. Uh, I've run many startups and worked with many and only care about net margins, not gross margins. Why do gross margins matter if they don't factor in, factor in everything? Well, you're right. I mean, in the end, net margin is probably what people should look at. You know, gross margin is an intermediate result. It gives you a couple of things that is kind of important. The first thing is it tells you whether your product costs are on track. So if you take a low operating leverage business, which has high variable cost, right? And your variable costs are increasing like crazy and your gross margin is dropping, you've got to worry. So it's a metric that you want to look at to basically control the cost of your product, right? Uh, now, net margin, you, you look at because you also want to control your fixed costs and your operating expenses. So both are important. And I found that you can't balance one without the other, depending on the type of business you're in. Now, if you're in a high operating leverage business where you have terrific gross margin, like 90%, and it drops to like 87, maybe you're not as worried. But if you're in the phone business, for example, where your gross margin is 30% and it drops 5%, that's the difference between you because you can't get rid of fixed costs that easily. So you might instantly, if you only focus on net margin, you might have a problem. I always wondered, what's the profile of the best people to lead an innovation-focused company, and what should you stay away from? I don't know. I mean, like, it's that's a difficult question, what you stay away from. You should stay away from things you don't know. <laughs> so, I mean, there's no point entering stuff unless you have a grasp on things. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I always wonder, like, in an innovation company, like, uh, when Steve Jobs was brought back, he was very innovation-focused. But all the guys before um, before him, like, after they got rid of him as CEO, were was marketing, but most of them were finance types uh, that ended up running that an innovation company. And I'm from Philadelphia, and Unisys Corporation is, like, a $5 billion respirator company, um, but... Rarely did any of the CEOs after maybe one's 30 years ago have any innovation background. How important is it for an innovation company to have somebody that really understands and embraces innovation and has a curiosity about it to be leading that type of company as opposed to maybe some somebody comes from another type of background? No, it's very important because, you know, you have to have... Um, I mean, you really have to have a deep understanding, right, of, uh, of what you're basically trying to do. Because one thing is to, if you basically dream about things that you have no idea how to build, it won't happen. Because part of, part of uh, uh, the brilliance of Steve Jobs was that most of what he thought about was very realizable, right? So it's extremely important to have that, as I said earlier, a very, very good grasp of the market. You know, where are the open spaces in the market? Some people call it blue ocean. What are those open spaces that you can go address and how are you going to do it? Because part of it is when you have a vision of where you want to go, very often everyone doesn't know where you're going. And uh, you want to leave your team to get there. 
And, you know, Joel Arthur Barker has a beautiful saying with the difference between leaders and managers. He said, a manager manages within a paradigm. And a leader manages between paradigms. So when you have this paradigm shift, you want people to follow you, you have to be able to convince them. So uh, the people with an innovation mindset have a curiosity to evolve. And they're able to convince others to follow them, to get somewhere. And they're also very realistic as to what they can do in what time frame. How did you challenge and incentivize your people across the company to work on constant improvement? I think it comes through dialogue, right? Because if you involve everyone in the company and you constantly show progress and you show by example that when you make certain incremental changes, right, you get a much better, better outcome, then people are motivated to do that. But the key is to have them involved and not just throw stuff over the wall, but to constantly work with them and show them that when, uh, you know, it's not trial and error, right? You say, go try this and maybe you constantly improve. No, you've got to have concrete ways of showing how to improve. I'll give you an example. In one of the semiconductor businesses I was in, uh, they were quite happy getting the 32% gross margin. And in a semiconductor business, that's not good. You need to be at least 50% in order to afford the right operating expenses to get some profit okay, and to spend on innovation. So we basically came up with a, pro a, a process in order to get 18% improvement going from 32 to 50 in 18 months. And with a very systematic way, and with a very logical way and said, and actually got them involved to come and discuss as a group how we would do each of these different steps. And almost everyone in the group by the end of the session had agreed, yeah, these are very logical steps and we are committed to doing it and let's go try. And true enough, as you know, it basically every month we were able to get one to 2% improvement. And we made the, in some months we didn't get any improvement, but because the steps were so logical and everyone was involved and bought them, we were able to make the change. Uh, what was the biggest mistake you made and what did you learn from it? Oh, I think I have to go back some 30 odd years ago. <laughs> you know, my business was growing really well. I was growing at 50% a year. So I had reached a giddy 1.5 billion in sales. And uh, I think we got, we got very arrogant with our success. And uh, we thought that we didn't, we didn't pay attention to the market. We didn't pay attention to our competitors because we were growing so fast. And we thought we could take even more share, right? We got greedy and we got, uh, we got silly, honestly. And we invested in excess capacity. We went through a lot. We, we, did, we made a lot of investments in people. Uh, and hiring a lot of people. And the market couldn't support what we were trying to do. And so we lost, I lost uh, uh, 600 million that year. Now, what is interesting is I realized the folly and early on, and I should have gone and told everyone, but you know, I wanted to fit in because everyone wanted me to do this, including the guys who were responsible for my future. And I should have spoken up and said, no, we shouldn't do this. Right? So 
sometime in the year, I went to my boss and I told him, I think we're going to lose this much money. And I don't think anyone listened to me, but I should have actually put my foot down and stop and pull, pull the brakes, but I didn't. And we did lose exactly what I said we would do. So at the end of the year, I went to him and I said, look, I'm going to step down. And he said, why? Uh, you recognize the problem. And I said, well, I recognize the problem, but I should have stopped it. So I stepped down from my job and I went and cleaned up the mess. And they were really thankful that I did that. And then they promoted me back up again. <laughs> so it was a really good experience. What I think the message is, if you're responsible for an outcome, don't get influenced. Listen to everyone. You have to listen. You have to learn. But if you're responsible for the outcome, you decide based on your assessment, not the opinions of others. Here's my last question for you. and won't surprise you I'm asking this question because I basically ask this to everybody now that comes on the show. What role is AI going to play in product development and closing more sales? I know AI, you know, especially generative AI, uh, you know, because of the all, all the algorithms, the abstraction, and the cloud compute that you have, has made it accessible to more people, and it it will help in a number of areas for productivity, right? Um, uh, it will help in 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 a very, very wide range, like even in, in engineering, for example, I can use artificial intelligence to learn about how to check my code software, okay? Which I can do with machines now, rather than having people look at it. I can use uh, AI to look at uh, security flaws in my software, which will help me with productivity, right? Uh, in, the, in the case of sales, it could be extremely useful to look at trends, right? And uh, you have a lot of tools today. So um, I think essentially it's an it's a expanded toolbox. And, you know, it's how you can use it. I don't think it's going to help me with solving more difficult problems because it's really statistical pattern matching that it's good for and it doesn't understand causality. So I don't think it's good for problem formulation, but for productivity and efficiency, it will be very useful. Sandeep, thank you so much for spending the time to talk about uh, your book and answering our questions. You have an amazing wealth of experience and the book is fabulous because you give great examples uh, throughout the book based on what you uh, faced during your career. And uh, good luck with your current venture. And uh, we hope you'll write another book and we'll have you back again. Thank you so much, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Thank you again for the opportunity. Everyone have a wonderful weekend. We'll look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.